Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders for Grace Fellowship Church. And if you have children here with us, we're really glad that you could be here and and they could be here. We welcome a bit of noise here in the service. We're used to it. It's a a privilege and a joy for for the children to worship the Lord with us. Uh, But if, however, you find your children are too distracting for you or for other people, there's a nursery available for you. Out the back door here, uh, to the left, down the stairs, and just turn right, and at the end of the hallway, uh, there will be some folks there ready to assist you. This summer, when the Supreme Court of the United States made its decision in the Obergefell case to legalize same-sex marriage, I came across a very helpful podcast by Dr. Al Mohler. <laughs> He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Moeller analyzed the decision and took a look at at all of the dissenting opinions written by justices in the case, and he analyzed all of this in light of recent history and historic judicial precedent, and Moeller predicted what was to come in the wake of this decision. He predicted that there would be confusion among the states regarding how to implement the decision, He predicted that there would be questions about the role and the power of the Supreme Court to make legislation, and he predicted that there would be increasing threats to religious liberty in the United States. Moeller's analysis of the situation was so helpful when I listened to this that I subscribed to his podcast, and it was excellent because every weekday I had a 30-minute audio file automatically delivered to my phone. I could listen to his discussion of the news, the headlines, events going on as he analyzed them from a Christian worldview perspective. And I listened to Dr. Moeller for a few months. And then, just a few weeks ago, I had to unsubscribe from his podcast. And the main reason was because I found, as I listened to him day after day after day, there was no good news. And that was discouraging to me. And it wasn't that I necessarily disagreed with all of his analysis. It's just that every day he was talking about how our country is getting closer to legalized euthanasia, which will eventually pave the way for mandated euthanasia for certain conditions. He would talk about how same-sex marriage opens the door to all kinds of marriage redefinition, like multiple husbands or multiple wives, or marrying animals or little children, all kinds of things. He talked about how religious freedom is hanging on by a thread, and it feels like churches and Christian schools and ministry organizations just won't last much longer in this culture. Dr. Moeller is incredibly intelligent, and he is biblically astute. He holds tightly to the essentials of the Christian faith, and he proclaims them with boldness. He stands his ground in the academy. He can hold his own among cultural elites, but his worldview analysis focused so much on our culture's problems, setbacks, and obstacles to the gospel that I just needed to take a break in order to get some good news. That doesn't invalidate anything that he says. I just want to suggest that there's more than one way to read the times. 
because the Supreme Court of the United States can't stop the advancement of God's kingdom. Even if Christian schools and churches lose their tax-exempt status and they have to go underground, God's kingdom will still advance. And so this week, we begin a new sermon series for our church. We're going to study through the Gospel of Mark together. If you have one of the church Bibles, we'll be on page 542, looking at the beginning of Mark. And Mark, in his book that he wrote, it is a book full of good news. The very first verse of the book, the the title of the book, the prescription you could call it is this. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel is one of those Christian words we throw around a lot. Sometimes we might not know what it means. So let me tell you, the word gospel simply means good news. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. And this morning what I would like to do is to take a big picture survey of the entire book which will set us up for next week when we dig into the first part of chapter 1. And as I survey this book, I want to address three issues that you can see in your outline. First, we'll talk about why Mark needed good news. In other words, I want to talk about the author of this book. Second, we'll, we'll see why the Roman Christians needed good news. We'll discuss the audience of this book. And then third, we'll see how Mark presents the good news, where we'll talk about the structure of the book and the themes within the book. Let me pray for us again uh, as we discuss these things further. Father, in the midst of so many discouraging and disheartening things, thank you for sending us good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Please help us now to hear your word and to understand it and to be set up to to read it appropriately and to place ourselves in the situation where you gave this book originally. Help us to honor you and to love Jesus, the Son of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, let's talk about the author. Why Mark needed good news. Now this book, nowhere in the book itself identifies an author. But church history unanimously ascribes this book to a man named John Mark. This man, John Mark, sometimes we just call him Mark, he has a fascinating story through the New Testament. He pops up every once in a while. He was a Jew, grew up in a Jewish family in Jerusalem, was probably from a wealthy family because We're told in Acts 12 about how many people met in his mother's house for prayer. And when the Apostle Peter was in prison and miraculously escaped, when an angel came and got him out of prison, the first place Peter thought to go to look for some friends was at the home of Mark's mom's house. We know that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, And Barnabas was another wealthy landowner who sold a whole bunch of property to donate to the church. And in Acts chapter 12, Barnabas and Paul begin doing some mission work together. Paul was the the famous missionary to the Gentiles, one of the main figures in the book of Acts. 
And on his first trip that he went on, he took Barnabas with him as his partner, and the two of them together decided to take Mark with them on their missionary journey. But in Acts 13, verse 13, Mark leaves them midway through the trip, and he returns to Jerusalem. And we find out a little bit more about that in Acts chapter 15, where when... uh, When Paul, after he's come back at the end of his trip, he's getting ready to go on another trip. This thing over Mark, and Mark having left them midway through their first trip, actually causes a falling out between Paul and Barnabas. In Acts chapter 15, verse 36, it says that after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So Mark had the pedigree to accomplish much for Christ. Mark had resources, he had connections, he had education, he had a religious background. But there came a point for him when he let his companions down in a big way. It is no small feat to have someone refuse to take you on another trip because you so seriously disappointed him on the first trip. That's a big deal. And this rejection by Paul, the famous missionary, this shook Mark up. And we don't know exactly what God used to encourage Mark or to turn him around. Maybe it was Barnabas' training and Barnabas' encouragement on the next trip when Barnabas decided to stick it out with Mark. We don't know what it was, but we do know, in fact, that Mark did turn around and he came out of that slump, so to speak, Because in Colossians 4.10, Paul says to the Colossian church, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, that's how we know he was Barnabas' cousin, it's from this verse, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, greets you, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So you see, Paul, this is later, after that second trip of Paul's, Paul commands the Colossian church not to hold Mark's failures against him, but to welcome him. It gets even better, though, because in Paul's final letter, right before he dies, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What a turnaround. Eventually, after Paul is executed, Mark chooses to attach himself to the person who knew Jesus best. That was the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter's first letter to a group of churches in the province of Asia, 1 Peter 5.13, Peter says, She who is at Babylon sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. 
So Peter had developed quite some affection for Mark by the end of his ministry. In fact, it was so strong that the church fathers labeled Mark as the interpreter of Peter. He had gotten so closely attached to Peter that he was called the interpreter of Peter. And as you read Mark's gospel, there are times when it sounds like Peter himself is telling the story. Peter provided much of the material for Mark, the eyewitness testimony that Peter then wrote down. And a lot of these stories are from Peter's perspective. What's the point of all this? Here's why I'm talking about this. It's because Mark knew firsthand what it was like to be disheartened. He knew what it was like for life to be difficult. He saw the challenges of the Christian life, and he chose to give up and to desert Paul and Barnabas on the mission field. Yet eventually, Mark saw the victory of Christ's power over every challenge. And this equipped him to write an account of the good news of Jesus Christ. These are the things we ought to know about Mark and why he knew the good news. But let's move on. Number two. Let's talk about the original audience. Why the Roman Christians needed good news. Mark's gospel, this book of Mark, is not a letter like many books in the New Testament. It doesn't identify a particular audience. It doesn't say, Mark, writing to the believers in Rome. But the fact that we know that Mark was with Peter late in Peter's ministry... And we know that Peter was in Rome late in his ministry. That leads us to think that Mark was with Peter in Rome. And that Mark wrote his gospel for the Roman Christians. That's how the argument goes. In addition, there are clues in the text that at least his audience is not people in Palestine. People who maybe have never even been to the land of Israel. Because all throughout the, the, the book, Mark uses Aramaic terms and then he translates them into Greek for his audience. Because Aramaic had been spoken in Palestine, but Greek was spoken in most other places. So in Mark 3.17, he calls James and John Boanerges, and then he translates it, that is, sons of thunder. And in 5.41, he says that Jesus told this dead girl, Talitha Kumi, and then he translates it, he says, this means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And in addition, he uses some Latin terms, which would have been very familiar to people who lived in Rome. In Mark 12, 42, he talks about the widow who puts in two copper coins in the treasury, and he uses a specific Latin term. She puts her lepta in there, and it was a coin that was used in the city of Rome. And so we, it gives us some signals as to who Mark is writing to. In addition, regularly throughout, Mark explains customs that took place in the land of Israel that people outside Israel wouldn't have known. So in chapter 7, verse 3, he says that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash hands. They wash their hands, and in addition, they washed all their pots, and he goes into great length explaining this custom in a parenthetical statement. These things suggest to us, at the very least, that Mark's audience was not from the land of Israel. They hadn't grown up there like he did, they were in a faraway place, but they were trying to follow Jesus. 
They had heard rumors about Jesus. They had heard the message about Jesus come to them, and they had believed, but yet they're struggling because they're in a faraway place, away from where Jesus had been. Their faith at the time was considered to be this minor Jewish sect that had arisen out of a small corner of the world. They were outsiders. They were not a part of mainstream culture. And if, in fact, they were in Rome, Rome was the place where Paul had been under house arrest for years, and then he had been tried and executed. It's possible that Peter has been executed by the time Mark writes. We don't know the exact date that he wrote. But eventually, within a few years or decades, in the not-too-distant future, Emperor Nero would blame Christians for a devastating fire in the city of Rome, and Nero would have the Christians rounded up, kept in custody, and then he would bring them out once in a while and have them dipped in oil, tied to posts, and set on fire in order to provide illumination for his parties in his backyard. Times were not great for Christians in Rome. They needed good news. There was much to dishearten them, and it would only get worse within their lifetimes. Mark provides them with Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus' life, and he gives them a reliable book on which to thank their lives. In addition, everyone at the time knew what happened when a new Caesar gained the throne. Ever since Julius Caesar had been proclaimed a god and demanded uncontested worship of the empire's citizens, new Caesars, upon ascending to the throne, would send out their messengers across the empire. And the Greek word for those messengers was apostoloi, where we get the English word apostles. And they would send them out with an urgent message of good news. The word we hear as gospel. And that the messengers with the good news would tell all that they must honor the king. And they would say, hear the gospel of Augustus, son of Caesar, son of God. And so these words and phrases like apostle, gospel, and son of God were very well known at the time. It's as if I told you a story today. And I didn't tell you what the story was about, but by the vocabulary I used, you would know exactly what I was talking about. If I told you that the polls have closed and the Electoral College has cast their votes, hail to the new chief. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Even though I don't have to say, I'm talking about the election of a new United States president. There's a vocabulary that surrounds the accession of a new ruler. And it was so at that time as well. In the same way, Mark begins his book with this highly recognizable vocabulary. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark brings really good news for those who really need it. And this good news is set up in direct antithesis to the culture. 
So how does Mark do it? Let's get into a little more of the content of the book. Number three, how Mark presents the good news. I want to cover two areas that make Mark unique, especially compared to the other three Gospels in the New Testament. Style and structure. And under structure, I'll cover some themes as well for the book. First, style. Because Mark is writing to people who didn't see these events take place, and in fact, they've never walked alongside the Sea of Galilee. They've never seen Herod's glorious temple tower over the city of David. They've never tasted the juicy figs in the surrounding countryside. Because Mark is writing to those people, he does his best at trying to put them there, to put them in the story and in its setting. Mark gives more narrative details to his stories than any of the other gospel writers do. Now, his prologue, the the first 15 verses of chapter 1, is pretty short. He races pretty quickly through John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation. But once we hit the body of the book at verse 16, from then on, almost every time, if you look at, at an episode in Mark and you compare it with an episode in one of the other Gospels, it's almost always longer in Mark. For example, the story about legion, Jesus casting a legion of demons out of a guy in Mark chapter 5. That appears in three Gospels. And in Matthew, it is seven verses long. In Luke, that same story is 14 verses long. In Mark, it's 20 verses long. Mark really stretches his stories out in order to give more details and more setting to put you there so you can see it and hear it and feel it and taste it and smell it. Mark also does something unique with his grammar, with his style. That's unfortunately, it's not usually translated, what what Mark does with his verbs. Let me illustrate what he does, and then I'll explain it. Uh, A few years ago, I read The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins because I, I try to keep up on books that college students A lot of college students are reading as a part of my work with college students. So I read The Hunger Games, which starts out like this. When I wake up, the other side of the bed is cold. My fingers stretch out, seeking Prim's warmth, but finding only the rough canvas cover of the mattress. I prop myself up on one elbow. There's enough light in the bedroom to see them. My little sister Prim, cocooned in my mother's body, Sitting at Prim's knees, guarding her, is the world's ugliest cat. Now, there's something very unique about the way Suzanne Collins writes her stories, which is because most people today in the English-speaking world who want to write a story, they write in the past tense. When I woke up, the other side of the bed was cold. My fingers stretched out, seeking Prim's warmth. But Collins writes her novels in the present tense. When I wake up, the other side of the bed is cold. My fingers stretch out, seeking Prim's warmth. And as I read The Hunger Games, I found this incredibly unsettling. And it took me probably 50 pages before I realized why I was so unsettled. I was like, oh my goodness, this is in present tense. Nobody ever does that. It just, it felt too real, too present. And especially in light of the dark themes of that book, it it made the themes more real, more vivid, more alive, and unsettling. And that's what Mark does. 
And unfortunately, English translations, I'll put it in past tense because that's the common convention for storytelling in the English-speaking world. But in Greek, most of Mark's verbs are in present tense, and that's unique. The other gospel writers don't do that very much. And if you ever, if you look at a New American Standard translation, they at least mark all the present, term, present tense verbs with an asterisk. And you can see everywhere Mark does it. It's all over the place. It's very clear that Mark wants these stories to unsettle you. He wants you to feel like you are there and this is happening right now in your present. He wants you to put yourself there and see the life of Jesus unfold as though you were with Peter and his pals. You were casting your nets when Jesus first called you. You were at the side of your mother-in-law when Jesus takes her by the hand and lifts her up from her sickness. You were there standing and watching Jesus glow on the mountaintop when you hear his majestic voice. You are there in utter shock at Jesus' arrest, where you didn't even have time to dress yourself in anything but a linen sheet. And when the soldiers tried to seize you, they grabbed the sheet, and you fled naked, leaving the sheet behind in the captor's hand. You hear the cock crow, and you hear the Son of God cry out with his last breath. How is this going to apply to us as we study life? Let yourself get caught up in the beautiful simplicity of the story. As you read Mark, please use your imagination and imagine what it must have been like because when this story becomes your story, it will change your life forever. And that's Mark's intention. Because that is when it is really good news. So how does the story go? How does Mark package it? Let's talk about the structure. There's a box on your outline with the essential divisions of the book that we will follow through. The the book has a prologue and an epilogue. These first 15 verses have a prologue that open with a few short scenes, basically declaring that the king is here, the kingdom is at hand, and Jesus, the son of God, the king, comes on the scene. And where the book is going to end in chapter 16 is with an empty tomb. And women visiting the tomb and the angel says, he has risen, he is not here. So we're going to go from the king is here to the king is not here. And in between, the body of the book, parts one and parts two, are very interesting. Mark divides his book pretty evenly, about eight chapters apiece. Chapters one to eight and then eight to 16, roughly. And part one opens up with the divine voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism declaring, you are my beloved son. And then that part, the end of eight chapters, it will climax with Peter's great confession when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. That's part one. And then we go into part two. And part two opens up with the divine voice from heaven on top of the Mount of Transfiguration early in chapter 9 saying, you are my beloved son. 
And then we go through that part in a climax at the end in chapter 15, verse 39, where Jesus dies on the cross and the Gentile Roman centurion looking up at the way he died and says, truly, this man was the Son of God. So the parts are framed around these declarations of who Jesus is. You are my son, you are the Christ. You are my son, truly this man was the son of God. And part one, that first half, focuses on Jesus' kingly credentials. Mark will go from scene to scene to scene, describing Jesus' authority, to speak and act and to renew all things. He'll talk about the kingdom that Jesus plans to establish, and he'll explain the vision that Jesus calls his followers to, as Jesus sets up his credentials as the king to be followed. But then part two makes a major shift. Part two of the book focuses on Jesus' kingly pain. As the king, who is the warrior, who goes out in front of his army and lays down his life, to accomplish victory. Part two of Mark talks about how Jesus doesn't meet anyone's expectations for what a king is supposed to be. Mark spends time talking about how Jesus must overthrow the establishment and suffer retaliation for it. And eventually he talks about how Jesus lays down his own life for his people, thus setting the model for any good king for the rest of time. Any good leader, in fact. And this whole gospel is beautifully structured to highlight for us who Jesus is. And all four gospels are meant to show us who Jesus is, and each of the four gospels has a slightly different answer to that question, who is Jesus? Not contradictory answers, just he's so important a figure and complex that one biography isn't enough. And Mark's main answer to the question of who Jesus is, is that Jesus is the king. Because if we go back to verse 1 of chapter 1, Mark starts with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he gives Jesus two titles here. Christ, Son of God. Christ is the title that will climax part 1 at the end of chapter 8. And Son of God is the title that will climax part 2 in chapter 15. But Christ... Is this Hebrew, uh, it's a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah, which means, today a, a lot of people say it means anointed one. That doesn't really help us a whole lot. We don't have a lot of anointed ones today. But what we need to know is that in the Old Testament, kings and priests and prophets were all anointed. They had oil poured on their heads. That's what it means to be anointed. They were anointed as a part of the ritual where they would take office as king, as priest, as prophet. So today, we don't talk about anointing. We would talk about something like inauguration or swearing in. That's what Christ means. One who's been inaugurated to his position. I like to simply call him the chosen one. The Christ is the one appointed by God to do a job. And the second title that Mark gives in here is the Son of God. I already mentioned one connection to the announcements of the new Caesars who would call themselves sons of God. But there's also really important background here in the Old Testament. Because in, in the book of Exodus, God called the, the nation of Israel his son. You, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son because 
you have screwed with my firstborn son, I'm going to screw with your firstborn son. So these people are God's son, and Pharaoh is judged for mistreating God's son. But by the time you get to David in the Old Testament, in the advance, and there's a monarchy set up. The king of Israel becomes God's son, the representative of the people. Psalm 2 says to the king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that his son will rule forever. And God says, he will be a son to me and I will be God to him. So God's son in the Old Testament was the entire nation of his people that came eventually to be represented or embodied in the person of the king. And Mark focuses on this kingly perspective of the Son of God. When he talks about Jesus as the Son of God, he's talking about Jesus' kingship. He spends so much time on Jesus' authority and his actions, his kingdom, and his glory. Now, why does all of this matter? What does this have to do with us? It matters because the world doesn't have much good news to offer us. There are claims to power out there and claims to success and acceptance and pleasure, but all of the world's claims to such things center on who you are and what you do whether you are fulfilling your potential, whether you're looking inside yourself and you're being self-fulfilled and you're satisfied and you're pleased and you're advancing, it's all about you. And in fact, every other world religion promises a way to fulfillment based on your ability to perform a list of rituals. And then Mark brings his message. This message that we call Christianity, which offers you not just a way to fulfillment in yourself, but this message offers you a king who knows that you can't do what's expected of you. A king who steps in, in fact, to do it for you as your representative, and he welcomes you despite your failure so that you can turn away from what you value to love him most of all. Friends, if you don't know this king yet, may you meet him in these pages of Mark, because he is here, waiting. If you are feeling disheartened by the darkness of life in a fallen world, may this king give you hope for the future. Because we will see in Mark that his kingdom is unstoppable. And it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. Let me give you two closing applications. I don't want anyone to say this sermon is all heavy and not practical. Here you go. First, please read the Gospel of Mark. First application, please read the Gospel of Mark. Could you use some good news this week? There is no better news than you will find here. You could read this whole book by next week if you read just a little more than two chapters per day. Or if you like to read, and especially if you've got some time this afternoon, consider reading the whole thing in one sitting. If, if you don't stop to think too much about 
the tricky parts, and just keep moving. Just just to get yourself familiar with the story, you can read the whole thing in just over two hours. You can do it this afternoon. Please read Mark. Immerse yourself in the story. Imagine yourself there and ask God to show you his son, the authorized king who rules over all. First application, please read Mark. Second application to close. Please pray for our preachers as we begin this new series. Please pray for our preachers. The challenge of preaching a gospel is that it's so familiar. We think we know it, and then we don't hear it. So pray for our preachers that we would really hear it. It's not like Job. We just finished our sermon series in Job. None of us had ever preached Job before. None of us had ever really studied Job before. And so everything felt fresh. But Mark is going to be more challenging. And the preachers, we who will be up here, we need to be changed and transformed by this text as much as anybody else does. So please pray that God would encourage our hearts with this amazing good news and that he would encourage our church as we see the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for giving us good news. Lord, we have so much bad news all around us. Sometimes it's all we hear. We hear about how things are going downhill. We hear about the dangers and the threats to freedom and how things aren't what they used to be. But Lord, you have a different message, a different interpretation for us, that you have invaded history and you are making all things new and nothing can stop you. Help us to be shaped by your perspective on the world as we study this Gospel of Mark together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.